You're listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Lubbock, Texas. Redeemer Church is a gospel-centered, missional family of disciples making disciples and churches planting churches. If you would like to get more information or donate to this ministry, please visit RedeemerLubbock.org. Okay, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. My name is Dusty. I'm one of the pastors here. Really glad that you are here. Um, We're going to be in Isaiah 6, and... um, it's a, it's a really cool passage, and I'm glad to be able to talk with you about it. Um, what's going to happen today is we're going to hear a story from a long time ago that um, is Isaiah having a vision of being in front of the Lord. And I'm, I'm going to make a case over the course of today that, um, that this path that Isaiah is on as he encounters the Lord actually is a normative path uh, for Christians, maybe minus the vision part. Um, and so I just want to invite you into that. Now, here's what's going to happen, though is that, um, that Isaiah has this view of the Lord here. And argument I'm going to make is that, um, that we tend to have a really distorted view of God um, in one of, one of two ways usually. I'm sure there's lots of different ways. And let me define that a little bit, especially if you're an outsider, kind of outside looking in on the Christian faith, kind of exploring it perhaps, that what I mean by distorted would be something other than um, as God reveals himself in the Bible. Like that's, that's the standard for what God is like is his word where he has spoken to us about what he is like. And uh, the tendency is going to be for us to have, uh, you know, something other than that. And again, I think in one of two ways, one way that we can have a distorted view of who God is, is that um, he ends up looking a lot like us. All right. And then this is, this is the most common thing for human beings to do is to um, whatever it is that we value, um, you know, culturally, what we personally value, how we are living our life, that we kind of project that on how we imagine God and then just assume that God values it in the same way. And um, so um, I'll give you a couple different ways of saying that, this first kind of distortion of who God is. Um, one way would be a book that I read. I mean, it's been a while, but I just think it's, it's so good. A guy named Stephen Prothero wrote a book called American Jesus. And um, in, in this book, Prothero makes the argument that Americans from really the very beginning have um, in a very unique way, in a way that human beings tend to, but maybe more so, have remade God in our own image, re- specifically even remaking Jesus in our own image. And he would start with you know, Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers, and Jefferson took a, took a copy of his Bible and quite literally cut and paste, uh, like with a razor blade, because there weren't digital means. Uh, so you know, took his Bible, and what he did is immediately cut out Paul. Go, that, that isn't real. That's not authentic. That's not good. And, but even in Jesus's teachings, he would cut out with his razor blade the teachings that he viewed to be inauthentic. In other words, that, and you're like, well, how would you know? Is he like a textual scholar? Would he know which ones that, you know, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John would have written? Well, no. Uh, but things that didn't, uh, didn't square with his kind of enlightenment, post-enlightenment uh, worldview, the things that did just didn't go with that, Jefferson cut out, actually physically cut out of the Bible. And it's on display, um, Jefferson's Bible, um, where he cut those things out. So, um, so that would be one where we functionally do that and go, I'm not comfortable with these things. And usually what ends up happening is, for us specifically in our moment now is you end up imagining imagining a God who's very affirming of whatever it is that you think makes you happy, even if it's really destructive, even if it's bad for society, even if it's um, different than what is in the Bible, that we can imagine this distorted view of God is a reflection of us where um, he just kind of has his thumbs out and says more of a therapeutic benefit because again, that's a value for us that more than anything else, God wants us to be happy and have a good view of ourself and that's how we can imagine him. That's one distorted view where he's basically a reflection of you. And I would say this, that if the God that you have built up in your head pretty much 
thinks like you at every point, you might have made him up. I'm just gonna throw that out as a possibility. Every culture and every person of every age should see some things in the Bible that they think, this makes me feel uncomfortable. This makes me, this is different than how I think it should be. And then that might be a clue that you might be onto something then, perhaps. And so that's one distorted view. The other distorted view that some of us have wouldn't so much be a reflection of ourself, but we imagine, and it might be, uh, it might be that this is a family we grew up in. It might be um, some experiences we've had in our life, or maybe some preaching you've heard, um, where we imagine God to be very disconnected, aloof, maybe angry, kind of a little bit of get off my lawn. And like, he's not real focused on you, certainly in a and loving way, but he maybe zooms in every once in a while to tell you to be quiet and go busy yourself with something and quit creating problems and we ought to be ashamed of ourselves and go clean yourself up, you know, and then he turns away to go do something else. Um, and so those would be two, two distorted forms of how we view God, I think, that are going to be very common in here, either, again, this, um, this reflection of ourself or this disconnected, aloof, sometimes angry God. And um, so what we're going to do now is um, we're going to walk through this path that Isaiah is going to take us on. This is a beautiful passage. I mean, one of my favorites in the whole Bible. And we're going to follow this path again that I'm going to make a case is even a normative experience for Christians. And what's going to be interesting is, is we're going to see God as he is uh, through Isaiah's vision, but then Isaiah is going to have a new perspective on himself while he does it. So let's go ahead and walk through this. Uh, Pick up in verse one, reread these that you heard just a moment ago from Sarah. Verse one. Um, in the king that Uzziah died, now, real quick thing on that, King Uzziah was actually a really good king, and um, this, this happens at a point where there's just going to be a lot of concern about, like, where's this all going to go? Like, we experience this every four years, um, you know, in our country, going, wait, is it about to turn really good? Is it about to turn really bad? Well, this is a lot more intense than this because this is a, someone with a lot more power than our president, and they might be in power for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And so, you know, you're, you're coming into this moment going, what's going to happen to the country? We're going to move towards the Lord. We're going to move away. We're going to prosper. We're going to collapse. So he's thinking about that. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Uh, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, that's a heavenly being. Each had six wings, each two, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. All right, so... You know, Isaiah comes into this probably with being nervous. Where's this country going? Where are we going as a people? And um, and what he gets is a view of God. And this view of God is actually really similar. If you read John's account of the book of Revelation, he has a vision of being in God's presence that, that ends up being a lot like this, a whole lot. And so Isaiah has this experience, and um, what happens there is just a sense of who God is, and, um, and he's got these beings, and all of the time they do nothing other than say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, uh, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and they just keep repeating that. Um, John has something similar, not identical, that he accounts in uh, the book of Revelation. And so, you know, the attribute that's being declared here of God, you have these other things happening, uh, you know, the smoke and uh, the, the, the threat threshold shaking. I mean, imagine this, like the place shaking, except it's not an earthquake. It's not anything, but just God, God and who he is. You feel the weight of him, the glory of who God is. Uh, but then um, the, the words that are being attributed to God are holy, holy, holy. And that word there, is, there's a lot to that word of, of God being holy. 
Some of it would be something of uh, God's moral nature and his perfection. Some of it would be of just his beauty of his nature and character. Some of it would be his otherness about um, that he's different than you. So Isaiah walks in and he sees God and, and these beings are saying something like, beauty, 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 you know, other, 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 different than you, different than you, different than you. And like Isaiah's not walking up in this deal and being like, you know, kind of with a, you know, head nod, like the what's up, you know, like, but instead like, there's this, this sense here of other, other, other. Like, so that first distortion of God being kind of just a reflection of my values and my morality and um, my perspectives on how things ought to be and thinking maybe he exists only to make me feel better about me. Like all of those things just melt away and these beings are saying it all the time. Beauty, beauty, beauty. Holy, holy, holy. Other, other, other. I mean, awesome, awesome, awesome. I mean, they're just repeating it and they don't ever stop. In fact, Something that's really neat, especially because John repeated it, um, you know, something similar to it in the book of Revelation. Like right now, while I'm talking about God, hopefully pointing us to God, these heavenly beings are still doing it right now. You know, when we sing in a moment, like we'll join them on declaring these parts of who God is. Like we, we join in on that. Um, what a beautiful picture of, of how this whole thing works. It even makes the incarnation of Jesus pop even more when uh, like that is the right kind of praise that God, the God of this universe deserves. Like he deserves to be told um, and, and be truly believed that he is different and he is other than and he is beautiful. The most beautiful being in the universe, he deserves that and Jesus left all of that where he was rightly honored. He left all of that and emptied himself out and came in uh, as a baby and then was killed and was resurrected. And, and so this, this, is, this is the kind of experience that even right now is still going on. And that's what Isaiah sees. All right. So he has an experience then where in this vision where he sees this other God, which again, pushes so strongly on um, the kind of distorted view of God that, that probably a lot of us have. Okay. So now here's where Isaiah has a new perspective on himself. So let's pick this up in verse five. And I said, woe is me. In other words, I'm dead. I'm a goner. It even says it here, for I am lost. Um, like his first, his first inclination is, oh man, I'm in big trouble here. And he was even gonna be declaring woes and judgments for the people of Israel. And now, now he's going, man, woe and judgment on me. Like, I, I don't know if I'm gonna make it out of this encounter with this other than God, uh, this holy God. And this is, he begins to explain why. Uh, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Because this is what's interesting is as Isaiah sees God as he is, this other than God, and you have a sense of his weight and glory and beauty and otherness, the immediate thing was not um, uh, of him coming in. They're like, there's no bargaining going on at all. No bargaining. Um, Isaiah's not coming in and saying, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll follow you if, if, 
Um, you can, um, you know, help me find somebody that I love. If you can make my depression go away, um, if my kids will start doing better, um, if my job will take off in my career, if you'll help me know what to major in, and if you'll um, help me get through some of these physical problems I'm going through, or like if if you can kind of get some things squared away. There's a lot going on down here. You may have kind of like there's no bargaining. Um, there's no, there's none of that. Like this is a one-sided reality um, that Isaiah is experiencing of this God that's high and lifted up and everything's shaken and um, and then these beings are saying this and he has this sense of like like well, there's no there's no conversation going on here at all like I, I'm not going to say hey look I know you meant well in the Bible and but look things have changed and you, you need to kind of grow and you're like there's none of that like no matter what you think he should be like and how he should view things there's the sense that he holds all the cards all of them you know, that his word is final. And Isaiah's having this experience with him and his response to this is like, like I'm, I'm lost, I'm a goner. Like I've got nowhere to go in all of this. And, and it would be right for God to judge me right now. Like I'm, I'm in his presence. It would be a right thing with a God that's holy like that. Um, it would be right for him to kill me, for, right for him to judge me. And it, it's interesting if anybody could kind of come in with that head nod, you would think it would be Isaiah you know, and kind of, kind of the, what's up, you know, and come on, bring it on in here, God. You know, if anybody, if anybody it would be Isaiah, but I mean, he's the, the spokesperson, God's spokesperson to Israel. But even it's interesting that God's spokesperson to Israel, the thing he says is like the specific thing he points out is I'm a man of unclean lips. Isn't that interesting? In fact, it's not just me. I come from a whole people of unclean lips. I mean, what an interesting thing to point out. Now, some of it is because he's the role of prophet and there's this calling that God has on him to speak to all of the people. And so he's really conscious of his words. And he's like, man, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to go announce these things to your people because of my life and, and where I come from and what I've done and what I've said. Uh, but I think the other part of it is, is the reason you could talk about words and lips, and this is, comes up a lot in the New Testament, is that your words communicate what's in your heart, right? And so um, the reason that his uh, lips are unclean is because his heart is often unclean. And sometimes our words, instead of building people up, they're used to tear people down, whether they're in person or they're not. And we can just kind of ratchet them down and pull them, cut them down to size. Um, and so uh, he's aware of that. Like in the middle of God's presence, he's immediately aware of, of man, my lips and my heart have not always been a beautiful thing. In fact, sometimes they have not reflected what it is I'm seeing in this moment. In fact, these people that are my people, that we collectively have unclean lips, and because of that, we have, um, they're demonstrating we have unclean hearts. Now, this would be a terrible reality if this is the end of the story here of him being aware of God and then being aware of sin, but that's actually not where uh, the story ends. God takes the initiative. Now, Isaiah doesn't say, kind of kick those seraphim out of the way and sh you know, shush them and come up there and take the coal and put it on his lips and say, all right, I'm good. Like he, he didn't have the ability to do that. God takes the initiative and the seraphim come and, and take that burning coal to his lips and cleanse him. God takes the initiative. And this becomes a bit of a paradigm for exactly what would happen in the New Testament um, once Jesus Christ um, comes into the world. And we already talked a bit about why it was just so incredible that Jesus came at all, given the fact that he was experiencing worship like he should have, that he deserved of holy, 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 um, that the whole earth is filled with his glory, that that was, um, that that was the thing that he had deserved. He entered into the world, was crucified, was resurrected, and God takes the initiative. And that really, when you think the burning coal, think Jesus Christ, that his death 
and resurrection is the means by which that we are reconciled to God, that our sin is atoned for, is what it says here. And it's through Jesus' death and resurrection that our sin is atoned for. And, uh, and Isaiah experiences this. And so he's aware of who God is and his holiness and justice and his nature. He's aware of his sin, but then God meets him in that and actually um, gives him mercy and he actually demonstrates grace to him. That's how you become a Christian initially. Um, but it's also how we grow in God's grace. Um, I want to show you this chart. I did not come up with it. A couple of guys I know actually did. And so this is called the cross chart. And I want to show you um, how this is intended to work. Like Isaiah's experience is one that is an experience that Christians can enjoy their whole life. All right, so look at conversion. So again, I want to point to you that if you've not committed your life to Jesus, um, it's an awareness of both God and his nature and his character and his holiness and justice, and also an awareness of your sin. And then when you become aware of Jesus's grace, you believe that's conversion of Jesus's death and resurrection. But here's what you um, need to see here is that ideally what happens in our Christian life over the rest of it is that we grow in an awareness of God's holiness. And that would be like what Isaiah experienced. And whoa, like I'm, I see him as he is, holy, holy, holy. Simultaneously, you're growing in an awareness of, of your own sinfulness, all right? And in the middle of that is you grow in an awareness of God's holiness and you're simultaneously growing in a sense of God's holy, uh, of your own sin, that what happens in the middle of that is the cross becomes greater, grace becomes sweeter, it becomes a bigger deal than it was even at the beginning. Because what ends up happening, it doesn't matter when you become a Christian, it's not just a 12-year-old feel this, but you could become a Christian at 40 and think, yeah, I have a couple of things I need to work on, you know, I need to quit looking at porn, I need to, you know, be nicer, I guess. And like, think like you've only got a couple issues. But what happens is as you grow as a Christian, that ideally both of these things are growing as you see God as he is in his word. Like every page of the Bible has something of God's nature in it. And we see God in his word as we're reading it individually, hopefully in a sermon like this, hopefully in songs that we sing, hopefully in communion, um, hopefully in prayer, and hopefully in our Christian relationships. We're seeing something of who God is. And as we do, we become, oh my goodness, my words and... Uh, um, oh my goodness, my, uh, my perspective on something. And we actually are more aware over time of what's broken and messed up inside of us and simultaneously more aware of God's nature and a deeper appreciation of grace. So ideally what's gonna happen here for a growing Christian, at the end of your life, the cross of Jesus is just gigantic in your life. Like you, you don't think any of these other things that are even good things like um, finding love and having a career and making money and great vacations, sex, um, good friendships. I mean, those are all good things in the right sphere, but you don't think any of those things save you. You don't think any of those things make you whole. Like you've got more of a sense more than ever before of God's beauty and worth. And he's the only thing that can satisfy a greater sense than ever, even of those good things on how they don't satisfy greater clarity on what's broken and messed up in you that you ache to see redeemed. But the cross of Jesus and grace is so sweet, so beautiful, um, that greater than when you first believed. In fact, I would argue um, that the beauty of God is going to intensify uh, over all of eternity for you. You're going to experience and enjoy things of him, and that will grow in intensity for all of eternity. Um, that would be the hope. Now, this can go wrong. Look at this next chart um, where um, sometimes Christians only focus on one of these two things. Um, if you only grow in awareness of your sinfulness, 
um, you can actually shrink the cross where you're like, man, and, and listen, Christians, are, it's really easy for us to do this where we begin to focus on how bad we are and even where sermons, like a good sermon is where it's really convicting and you walk away feeling really bad about yourself. Um, I, I mean, I do hope sermons are convicting uh, that are preached here at Redeemer. I hope so because Isaiah has some of this, like that sense of woe is me and, um, and man, God is really holy. But here's the thing. If it's only about how bad you are, um, then what ends up happening is you grow in an aware of sinfulness, but you don't grow in a sense of God's kindness, grow in a sense of his holiness. What ends up emerging from that would be guilt and fear and shame and insecurity and despair. That's what happens. You just feel like I'm terrible and good sermons are the ones that make you feel awful. Good Bible readings make you feel awful. And that feels like you're spiritually growing when you feel awful. But God's goal in all of life is not to make you feel awful. That's not actually the point, right? The point rather is that you experience God and his kindness um, through the cross of Jesus, through the resurrection of Jesus, through the Spirit's ministry. Now, the other shot is also possible um, where we have a growing awareness. Now, what I would say this is, is usually in like Bible knowledge. Now, I'm not an anti-Bible knowledge guy at all. We've just talked about this, that God in his word will reveal where he is and what he's like. And so like there is no path to growth outside of here, but it's possible for you to grow in an understanding Understanding of certain doctrines and uh, even parts of who God is and uh, be really clear on what God commands. But if not, if not also growing with a sense of your own sinfulness and the inability of different things to satisfy, what can emerge is religion, moralism, self-justification, legalism, and pride. And this is why some of the meanest people you have ever met in your life are people that know a lot of Bible right? Uh, because it can be used as, as a weapon to kind of hit you over the head and even to make you feel dumb for what you don't know. Oh, you didn't know about this doctrine? Well, please read the Bible, you know, that kind of thing. And where they're up here and you're down here, but what's supposed to happen, rather go back to the other chart, is not a shrinking of the cross, but both of these things working in concert, where the more you're in God's presence and the more you see of him in the Bible about who he is and, and the more you experience him in this way, actually a greater sense of God uh, and a greater sense of your your own, just like Isaiah, a woe is me. And now I'm aware of what's broken. And listen, this experience I've had so many times. I mean, even while I've been soaking in Isaiah six, getting ready to preach it is I was reading um, Hosea and um, the last couple of weeks, I can't tell you how many times as I see something from the Bible about who God is, that I come into that time with the Lord with all sorts of things, everything from like sinful desires, like being greedy for material gain, lustful thoughts and actions or whatever. I mean, there's a million different things that can happen as you bring, come into your time in the Bible and, and then you see God as he is and then that, that thing is confronted where you realize, okay, that is, that is a really broken thought. That is a really broken desire. That is a really broken direction. Or maybe even perspective. Maybe there's been a kind of a petty conflict or you're kind of in a little marital squabble or with your roommates and you're, you're frustrated with each other or it could be a million things. And in the moment, all you've just been brooding over why well, I always do the dishes and I'm the one who's in the right on this thing and I do this and they do that. And then in that moment, all of a sudden, you haven't even asked the question of what perhaps you've contributed to this and what might be broken in you that's contributing to this falling out or this conflict or the fight or whatever it might be. And then in his word, as you see God as he is, all of a sudden you begin to see, oh, 
like I've actually contributed something here and I've got a new perspective on something I'm adding to this. And now I see something broken in myself that I had not seen before. And it makes me even more grateful for grace and a new experience of his grace in the middle of it. And y'all, this is on and on. And I would even make the case, it's one reason that makes um, worship services so powerful is because um, I don't know that you have an hour that you're spending a lot of us in here every week where you're doing nothing other than considering the beauty and the worth of Jesus Christ for an hour. You know, nothing else other than fixing your attention on Jesus. And, and that's where all these other things flow. But it's not the only thing. Look at this last part. And um, if we're going to read a few more verses in, uh, uh, in Isaiah. So look at this, verse 8. So he's experienced seeing God as he is. He's more aware of his sinfulness. He's experienced grace. And then verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and, say this, uh, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So what's interesting is, is this is very order, important we get this order right. See God as he is, aware of human sinfulness, mercy, and then mission and obedience is at the end. Send me anything. Anything you want, why don't you just send me and go and do it? Now, another thing that's interesting about this is that the message that Isaiah have is he's, basically God says, okay, I'm gonna send you, oh, by the way, no one's gonna listen to you. Uh, so if you ever naively think, oh yeah, if I'm gonna be obedient to Jesus, it means that people are gonna respond and they're gonna believe. Um, it did not work that way for Isaiah. People basically didn't listen to him at all. In fact, Jesus quotes this right here about why he spoke in parables later about why do you talk in parables? Well, I do it um, so you won't understand it um, because you don't want to understand it basically, you know? And so, um, so sometimes if you think that always necessarily moves into success, that's not exactly how it works. Uh, this is really interesting right here because um, he's saying, look, anything's, nothing's off the table. I'll go, send me, you know, anything. And a couple of things on this. One, I think sometimes we can start on the wrong end of this whole conversation with, uh, with, um, our Christian experience. And I think it's for some of us why our Christian life, when my Christian life starts to feel really dull, boring, stale, um, like I'm not growing, very discouraged, like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, it's usually because I, I'm starting on the side of mission and obedience and working back the other direction. So it's where I'm starting with, hey, I need to read the Bible. There's lots of Christian responsibilities and they're all good. And I'm not saying we should only do these things if we feel it. But um, when, I, when my Christian life feels the most dry and dead, it's when I'm like, man, I ought to be sharing my faith. Ought to be reading the Bible, ought to be at church, um, probably ought to be doing uh, more with my life, probably ought to be more generous than I am financially, um, probably should be a better friend, more kind and thoughtful. And, and like we work this way, and maybe even work back to our human sinfulness about, man, I'm not doing nearly as much as I should. But then we just kind of stay there. And, and like it's, it's all of these things we ought to be doing in these responsibilities and, and very, little, very little of God. So here's the thing that I think this passage is showing us, among other things, is that, um, that it starts with God, all right? It starts with God. It starts with God as he is, and then it moves to human sinfulness. And then we experience grace, and then there's mission and obedience. Um, once we've seen God as he is, then, then our heart is not 
well, I don't know, man, is this another sermon about money? You know, or I don't know, man, is this another, another thing about how I ought to be a better husband? I mean, another sermon about how we ought to be in Christian community? Well, I don't like small groups. I don't really like, I like just to come in and sit. I mean, like all this stuff, like it's, it, starts, it starts with God. And because it starts with God, we say, I don't know, man, here's my yes. I'm just going to put it on the table right here. Uh, here I am, send me. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. But we've experienced, instead of starting with that, we start with God's grace. And then it's like, I don't know, are we going to move overseas? Yeah. We'll do that. Yeah. And some of us are like, well, I'm not going to do this and I'm not going to do this. And we start coming into this whole thing about what we're not going to do. What would happen if our answer is, is, I don't know, you tell me, you tell me, God, anything you want from me. If you want me to move, I'll move. If you want me to go across the street and talk to my neighbor, I'll do it. If you want me to be generous, I'll do it. And there are all these things that God already has told you, these things in the Bible in general anyways. Uh, but then we see these things that are like, man, my heart is yes. But the way we get to that yes is experiencing God's kindness. We see God as he is. We're aware of our sinfulness. We experience his grace. And then we're catalyzed to say, whatever, man, even when it's painful, I'm going to forgive enemies. I'm going to go make things right where I've contributed to a broken relationship. Um, I'm going to go make it right if I haven't been honest about some money. I'm going to go, whatever it is. I mean, even things that cost us, we're going to go do those things. We're going to humble ourselves, even though we've been waiting for our spouse to come up and apologize for days. We're going to walk up and say, hey, sorry about that. Let me own some things I need to own without any qualification. These things right here are on me. And what would happen, you don't have to walk them through your whole Isaiah experience, but what happens if that's exactly how it happened, that you've seen God and he's beautiful, you've become more aware of your brokenness and flaws, and then you've experienced grace, and then now you have a new perspective and you seek to please him in obedience and mission. Um, what would happen if that's happening? So look, we've got distorted views either on that Jesus is just like us and we imagine him that way, or he's disinterested because we see this in this passage. He's far from that. He takes the initiative to bring mercy. He's neither of those things. He's holy and he's near. He's just and yet he's kind and he changes us. And grace is beautiful, y'all. Um, it's something worth singing about. In fact, that's what we're going to do now is we're going to really join with the heavenly beings and that are still doing this in heaven now. Like we're going to join that chorus right now as we declare God's holiness and beautiful um, nature and his worth and his kindness towards us in Jesus. Let's stand and I'm going to pray. Lord, would you help us to experience you like this, that we can experience you in your kindness, in your justice, your holiness, and um, experience, even while we're aware of our own brokenness, um, that there would be humility that would mark us, um, but there would be something of, of grace that would uh, really go into every part of our being and in our response. And there'd be some even initially today that would respond to you like that. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.